9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf. It is Thanksgiving week. I am thankful to be here with Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University, who is somewhere in the Washington, D.C. area. Am I correct, Rosa? You are, David. I'm in Alexandria. In Alexandria, Virginia. Also somewhere in the D.C. area, we have Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Are you in the D.C. area, Ed? I am indeed in Georgetown. And somewhere else, far, far away. (laughs) I am in Berlin, David. In Berlin, which is... One of the coolest cities in the world, and that's exactly where you'd expect to find Corey Shockey, one of the <laughs> coolest people you. in the world. Um, <laughs> uh, there's so much to discuss, but I would sort of like to go over different things going on in the world. And I know that, Rosa, you were for a couple of days in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And Ed, I know that you were for a couple of hours in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Um, meeting with all sorts of cool foreign policy people to talk about, you know, cool foreign policy stuff. And, um, you know, Rosa, did anything, what were people talking about there? What was going on in the world that was of interest to these cool insiders? (laughs) Well, um, I think several things happened were varying degrees of interest um, and surprisingness. Um, Not that surprisingly, the conversation was dominated by talking about China and China's likely future role. Um, Obviously, I think the events in Hong Kong gave that an added sense of urgency. Um, That was one issue that was very much on people's minds. Um, uh, We also had a talk by uh, now former Navy Secretary Richard Spencer, Wow. Um, who was asked if it was true, as the New York Times had just then reported, that he had threatened to resign uh, unless Trump stayed out of it um, on uh, internal uh, uh, disciplinary proceedings against uh, Eddie Gallagher, the SEAL who had been um, tried for war crimes. Um, uh, he asked the question, is it true that you said you would resign? Um, in protest. He said, absolutely not. I did not threaten to resign. See, I'm still here. Um, We got on the plane home from Halifax. uh, And by the time we arrived back in Washington, he had been fired um, under circumstances that remain ever so slightly mysterious. Um, But another, you know, one more body for the Trump administration body count. Um, we had a speech from Trump's new national security advisor, Robert O'Brien, in which he declined to say anything whatsoever about anything and uttered platitudes and insisted that the president does not repeat Russian disinformation and everyone rolled their eyes. Uh, and we had a little kerfluffle over a panel on women's security contributions that was originally scheduled to include only men. Um, <laughs> but after a... <laughs> <laughs> after a certain amount of gentle suggestions, um, 
it was changed that included a number of terrific women and ended up being a very powerful panel with both some terrific women and some terrific men. So all's well that ends well on that front. And that was Halifax in a, in a nutshell. Well, and Ed, uh, you, you just got a little tiny nibble of that nutshell. Uh, anything to add? Uh, well, no, I, for, for uh, convoluted personal reasons, I had to turn around um, the night after, the morning after arriving. Um, so I didn't um, sample those delights that Rosa laid out. But um, oddly enough, um, <laughs> Richard Spencer, the outgoing uh, Navy secretary, um, I first met in Halifax two years ago. In fact, I was on a panel with him where he was very tactfully, very un-Trumpian in explaining um, what America should be doing. Um, and then got to know him a bit more. And he's a neighbor here in Georgetown. And I can, um, you know, to the extent that um, that I know and uh, attest um, pretty strongly that he's a person of high integrity. Um, so I, I, I have doubts about Defense Secretary Esper's story um, about why he was fired, terminated um, on Sunday. Um, but sadly, I missed the rest of the proceedings, including the all-male panel on women's issues, um, <laughs> which sounds, you know, it sounds like I should have been on the panel to balance it, but um, certainly <laughs> had already left. <laughs> Can I toss in a few things that happened at the IISS Manama Dialogue? Of course you can. I'm coming from. You, uh, of course. Uh, it was so. So no senior Americans came. Well, uh, Undersecretary Rude was the senior American, and uh, the Defense Department, and in particular the Uniform Military, were very well represented with the Commander of the Fifth Fleet and the CENTCOM Commander there. And the entire conversation was about America abandoning the region. And um, Mackenzie uh, and the military guys kept trying to use statistics of numbers of exercises and 14,000 troops deployed to the region since Donald Trump became president. And I felt bad for them because they kept trying to use the metric of uh, military activity as proof of political trustability, and nobody was buying it. Um, so it was it was really striking how much uh, things are moving on because nobody believes the Trump administration knows what they're doing. Nobody believes that the president will follow a clear line of policy that allies can. Um, synchronize their activity to, and that might deter adversaries. Um, well, that's that's very interesting. Well, let's pick up on one of these stories, then we'll go to a couple of the other ones. Um, Rosa, the the story of uh, Navy Secretary uh, Spencer uh, and uh, this pardon of um, uh, this uh, group of uh, uh, SEALs that uh, uh, were found uh, guilty of war crimes, one of whom uh, had every single member of his platoon testifying against him, uh, has produced great consternation uh, and um, discomfort among the people that I know and have spoken to in the uniformed and retired military. And uh, today we've, we've learned that um, one of them, the leader of this uh, group, um, uh, who was pardoned, had representing him uh, a lawyer who was working for 
the Trump Organization and Bernard Carrick, uh, the uh, formerly incarcerated uh, partner of Rudy Giuliani. Um, so it's it's not only a kind of horrifying decision, uh, but it's also kind of corrupt on t- on top of it. And I'm wondering what's the buzz, you know, like what what are the long term consequences of a decision like that? You think? Well, I, I think my sense is that people in in the military community and the military law communities in particular are are pretty upset by this. Um, It's uh, obviously a a point of enormous pride for the military that they take obligations under the Geneva Convention uh, uh, very, very seriously. And those in terms of U.S. law uh, are are legal obligations in the U.S. under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And when you have a, you know, I mean, the military justice system is not perfect. That that is true. Um, but when you have a, a case like like this one in particular, but but also Trump also partnered uh, an Army Special Forces soldier who hadn't even gone through the full trial yet. Um, the the military justice system sort of wades in and plucks people out. And there's no question the president has the the legal power to do that. Uh, and I think it's also, you know, it's fair to say that pardons do not, generally speaking, you know, they, they, they don't represent exoneration necessarily. They, they represent executive clemency. Um, but that said, I think particularly in this context, you know, the signal it sends is, is really awful, right? For, for, I mean, think of those SEALs who came forward and testified against Gallagher which is extraordinarily difficult for people to do, you know, in these very close-knit communities. Uh, you don't tend to see that happening unless something was really badly wrong. And the message it sends to, you know, the vast majority of the men and women in uniform who take very, very seriously their obligations under the law of armed conflict, you, it, it, it's sort of like spitting in their faces, really, to say, you fought the right way, you fought ethically, you fought legally, uh, it doesn't matter. The president prefers this guy who you think committed war crimes and who the, the military justice system found to have committed illegal acts. We don't care. We're going to actually treat him like he's a hero. You know, and what a devastating message to send to them and what a devastating message to send to U.S. allies who take these this legal regime very seriously and, frankly, to U.S. adversaries and people on the fence, you know, that that part of the reason it's so important for the U.S. to comply with our legal obligations uh, is that we want not so much that we, we think, oh, you know, the terrorists will then accord us the same Geneva Convention protections. But when people are trying to decide things like, should I surrender to the to U.S. forces or should I share information with U.S. forces, which is incredibly important for us? You know, if they think that when if they surrender, that they will be tortured or killed. Uh, they're not going to surrender. You know, if they think that uh, the result of turning over information to us is going to be that they or others will be treated badly, they're not going to share information with us. So I think across the board, you know, this is this is viewed as, as pretty devastating and pretty demoralizing. Uh, yeah, no question about it. Let me let me go to Corey first and then go to Ed. Uh, Corey, did this come up where you were? And uh, ever since this started to unfold, I'd been wanting to get your take on it, since I suspect it would be uh, insightful and pointed. 
Thank you, my friend. I appreciate that very much. I agree with Rosa that uh, that celebrating war criminals uh, is bad for morale. It's bad for good order and discipline. It's bad for alliance relations. Uh, it will make it more difficult for uh, us to achieve surrenders and in to garner information. Like being the good guys is a strategic asset. Um, I, uh, I'm shocked actually that there haven't been more resignations over this. And I'm looking forward to the journalistic accounts of the meeting that the Secretary of Defense, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the service chiefs and secretaries evidently had on this, because um, uh, it's true that President Trump isn't the first president to reach into the military justice system. Uh, General Grant was very often frustrated with the way that Abraham Lincoln would commute sentences for desertion instead of allowing people to be hanged as they ought to have been. Um, and uh, still, what I keep thinking of is how bad it is for good order and discipline for people who violate the Uniform Code of Military Justice to want to become Fox News celebrity consultants in order to adjudicate their case in front of the President of the United States. That's really bad for the chain of command. And President Trump, it's also really bad for civil military relations because the suggestion that you know, the rank and file are loyal to the president and the, the officer shouldn't be able to control them is really dangerous stuff. Yeah, um, what, what Jim and I found in the research in the polls of American public attitudes that YouGov did for us in 2016 for our book, Warriors and Citizens, that Rosa wrote such a great chapter in, is that the only restraint on much more politicized behavior by the uniform military, that is the kind of thing that John Allen and Mike Flynn did at the uh, political conventions in 2016, the American public loves that stuff. Uh, there's a lot of support for the military uh, politicizing their involvement uh, in their involvement with the public. The restraint on it, the sole restraint on it is the professionalism of the military itself. And that's what President Trump is trying to corrode for his own narrow electoral purposes. And uh, it, it will collapse public respect and support for the military. The research of Jim Golby, Peter Fever, and Lindsey Cohn shows very clearly that the American public begins to see the military not as apolitical professionals, but as a political cudgel to batter their political adversaries with, very much the way the public now views the Supreme Court. That's where we are headed in public attitudes about the military. Um, yes, and that brings me to the question that I was going to ask to Ed, um, which which calls for little speculation here, although I think informed speculation. 
And that's where does this come from? Where does Trump's inclination to pardon war criminals come from? Some of it apparently comes from having his friends and associates involved in the case of this man, Gallagher. Some of it comes from my sense that Trump ran a campaign in which he he, he kind of talked a game in which he, he said he didn't have much use for these constraints on on war crimes that he that he felt that you know rules were for sissies and for poor people and that you sort of go out there and you 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 did what you had to do to win no matter what and that seems by the way to be kind of quintessential trump but i'm but i'm wondering Ed, what do, what do, what do you think has led to a presidency that publicly embraces this kind of behavior um, and has people like Esper defending this kind of behavior um, and seems to be trying to change the standards by which we operate. That's a very good question. I mean, if you remember back in 2015, 2016, when he was campaigning, he would often um, say torture works. He would often say that, look, we should kill the families of terrorists. Um, he you know, was, was signaling all kinds of complete breaches of any any sort of semblance of um, uh, military um, military law and international law and human rights law and war crimes law um, when he was a candidate. So in some respects, it's a surprise that it's taken him this long to you know um, to actually pardon war criminals, people who've committed war crimes. Um, so there's that. I mean, he tweeted the other day something along the lines of, look, we, we breed these killing machines, and then when they come home, we prosecute them for killing. I think, you know, the, there is a, um, a fundamental misunderstanding of what, um, what the American trained soldier or special operations forces are, um, are actually trained to do, which is only to kill, you know, in the last resort, um, and, you know, um, not to kill civilians and not to spray bullets sort of um, randomly. It's a, it, he's got a sort of Team America World Police idea of what the military does, which um, is it, it, very, very different, at least in theory, to what most, most trained American uh, men and women in uniform um, actually think they're, they're supposed to do and have been trained to do. Um, and then I guess there's, you know, what both Rosa and Corey both very eloquently you know, d described um, is the way that this echoes via Fox News um, with the public and with certain elements of his base who, who have similar, um, really quite sort of violent misconceptions of, of what a military is for. Um, Trump, Trump is a, a very, very crude man. Um, and this is his idea of war. It's like you just go, you shoot the fuck up out of everything. Um, and um, we should be giving them medals, not 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 um, confining them to the brig. Um, a, a sort of parallel concern to all this is, you know, Trump, as I think we've talked before, Trump is different from a fascist. And I've always resisted calling him a fascist because a true fascist he has a movement. Um, and has a systematic plan to take over the organs of the state, including the monopoly of violence. Um, so the police, the security forces, the military. And Trump has never really tried to, to do that um, in, in any systematic way. I fear he's beginning to come around more to that way of thinking now. And, and Richard Spencer's ousting 
is um, is a good example of it. Well, you know, Rosa, on a fairly regular basis, we on this uh, podcast uh, talk, of, you know, you, turn to you and talk about constitutional crisis. Um, and we're not obviously not having the, the traditional conversation we're having about impeachment here. But one thing that strikes me is that the way governments work are guided by different kinds of compacts. And some of them are formal compacts, like a constitution which sets out rules um, to which all who enter into the government swear an oath to uphold. Additional component of that um, is are the informal compacts, standards and values, uh, and that the rules only work provided people have certain standards and values that they're willing to uphold. Some of these are maintained by tradition. Uh, some of these we thought would never be violated. Uh, and yet we're in an era in which not only does this president violate them, but he seems to systematically be trying to undermine them. And he does this by relying on the constitutional compact, the formal compact, to empower him to do so, saying the Constitution gives me the power to do what I want, to get people to follow along, uh, to actually translate uh, his, uh, his particular set of standards and values into actions. And now you look around the world, and I, I suspect this may have uh, touched on the Halifax discussion in which I have read several other articles which said that the mood was pretty grim. And you say, well, you see, um, uh, not only are we pardoning war criminals, but we're pardoning foreign leaders who murder, murder resident Americans uh, such as Jamal Khashoggi. We're backing foreign uh, governments that are actually adversaries of ours and who attack us. Uh, we're supporting them in their aggression against countries like Ukraine uh, or in their uh, designs on countries um, like uh, Syria uh, uh, and, you know, and so on. I mean, you know, with regard to the Hong Kong thing just the other day, um, um, President Trump said something to the effect of, I'm with the people of Hong Kong, but I'm also with President Xi, uh, which essentially said I'm not with the people of Hong Kong. And so on and so on and so on. And and I'm just wondering, you know, I, we don't take that stuff into consideration, but, you know, it seems to me that the values once diluted uh, and once they become partisan issues and people start saying, well, president can do that. And, and that, you know, it sets a, a longer term precedent for future presidents. Uh, we, you know, we're, we're, we're opening ourselves up uh, to undermining the system without changing any of the formal documentation. I'm just wondering what your view is. Well, David, that's absolutely right, unfortunately. And, and this is something that I, I, I started early in my career as an academic, wrote about a lot uh, in the context mostly of other societies. Uh, I, I spent a lot of my time thinking and writing about efforts to promote uh, the rule of law, particularly in post-conflict societies and societies that were transitioning from authoritarian forms of government to democratic forms of government. And you know, one of the insights I think that, that com looking comparatively at other societies trying to do this makes really crushingly clear is that uh, the funding for rule of law programs often assumes that the rule of law just is a set of legal codes and institutions that if you 
get a bunch of smart lawyers together and they write a great criminal law code or they write a great new constitution for Iraq or Afghanistan or Bosnia or wherever it may be, um, uh, that that's half the rule of law. And the other half is if you train a bunch of judges and establish a bunch of new courts and train a bunch of prosecutors that, that they're, you know, presto, you've got something called the rule of law. And of course, the millions, indeed billions of, of wasted dollars and programs that went nowhere, um, uh, many of those wasted, you know, U.S. taxpayer dollars, as well as money from many other international organizations on, on rule of law programs that did not, didn't take, if you will. Uh, I think, you know, one of the main things that that made clear is that institutions and, and legal codes are in some ways the smallest part of the rule of law. It's a, it's a set of cultural commitments. It's a set of values. It's much more than anything. You know, you could have a rule of law society with people sitting under the big oak tree and, you know, no formal anything written down, um, but, and you can have the most beautiful constitution in the world and so on and not have the rule of law. And I think actually, you know, when you look at something like the, uh, the Soviet Union, um, um, that's a terrific example of a highly legalized society with all of the trappings of the rule of law from the institutional perspective and the, the perspective of legislation and codes, many of which look terrific on paper. And yet, as we know, it was a profoundly oppressive, uh, abusive society that, that massacred some of its own citizens, uh, left many others to die, treated people as essentially objects for the use of the state and was totally horrific. And, and I, think, I think that we have had a sense of American exceptionalism for, for way too long, just that, that easy assumption that, well, that's, those are problems for other societies. And, and here we have this very solid tradition. And, you know, this is going to sound totally sappy and cliched, but, you know, I think for me, one of the, the main takeaways from all of the work I've done looking at uh, uh, countries around the globe, whether you want to look at efforts to build the rule of law, or whether you want to look at the, the sort of slides into true atrocity, uh, is that there is absolutely no society that can rest on its laurels and say, we got this, that if you're not constantly sustaining that set of cultural commitments through civic education, through the models that elites and political leaders set and so on, it can disappear in, a, in a, the blink of an eye. In a few short years, uh, it can vanish and horrible things can happen. You know, at the best case, you get kleptocracy and corruption. Worst case, you actually get a slide into complete totalitarianism and, and mass atrocity. Um, and that's the direction we have been going in. I, I hope we don't get to the mass atrocity stage, but we're certainly moving quite rapidly towards the kleptocracy and corruption stage uh, of things. Uh, Corey, you were at this event in um, Manama, and the discussion um, touched upon faith in America. And I would imagine this shift in American values influences that, not just can you trust the U.S. to be a good partner, but what's the U.S. for and against? And clearly there are many people in the region who aren't necessarily always very well represented at conversations uh, like Halifax or like the, the one that you were participating in, uh, just regular folks who have gained a lot from the United States saying, no, you don't get everything from us unless you're moving towards democracy, unless you respect human rights, unless you uphold certain values. And 
you know, you can have a foreign policy debate about how to advance those goals. But almost every administration that I can think of has sought to do that and has gained a benefit from it, uh, both in terms of uh, progress, but also in terms of uh, leverage towards that progress. And, and, and yet we're not there anymore. And I'm wondering if that came up at all, or, or if you sensed that that was having an effect on the conversation you were having. Well, um, it's, it has been such an undercurrent in America's relations with the Gulf countries in the Trump administration, because um, the countries of the Gulf were deeply resentful of the Obama administration, uh, in part beca because they felt like they hadn't been consulted on the Iranian nuclear agreement, in part because um, they were dismayed when Egyptians uh, pressing for better governance uh, wanted to push out Mubarak and we supported that. And they've been extremely jittery since the Arab Spring. Um, and especially now, because you have large scale protests in Iraq and in several other countries in the region. And so um, they, so, so yes, this is all over the conversation. They were thrilled when the Trump administration came to office. You know, Mohammed bin Salman and Jared Kushner texting each other. That, that crazy picture of the globe that the president took his first overseas trip to the Gulf instead of to Canada or Mexico or to a like-minded free society was, you know, they the countries of the region really thought America was finally going to get off their back about human rights issues and uh, be worried the way they were worried about their security. That is domestic political control and a an strong anti-Iran policy. And it turns out that they like the erratic uh, loud threats and no stick approach of the Trump administration, at least as badly as they disliked the Obama administration. The complaints about the United States needing to reestablish deterrence after President Trump not retaliating against the Iranians. And I grant you it's tiresome to hear Gulf countries want to fight to the last American, as Robert Gates famously put it. Um, but they have a point that, that they thought they were getting a much more predictable, much more culturally and politically similar American administration. And it turns out what they have gotten is somebody who talks tough and won't deliver and whose erratic nature makes it hard for them to position themselves in a way that protects and advance their interests. So they're as unhappy with the Trump administration as they were with the Obama administration. And one last thing, I'm sorry to go on for so long, but the, the last piece of it is that, you know, Americans, can, political scientists and statesmen can pretend to talk about a realist policy where we just care about our interests and we subordinate our values. 
but you can't deliver the American public on that policy and you never have been able to. Um, and so uh, the Trump administration doesn't have the, the foundation that an American policy that has human rights, democracy promotion, and individual liberty at its core. No, well, well said. And, and you didn't go on to it. You know, the people tune into this podcast week in and week out to hear you say stuff like that. You know, they view you guys as their smarter friends or uh, um, drinking buddies, depending on how they <laughs> listen to the podcast. Um, uh, and Ed, in your case, it's, it's certainly both. I know that, that, that alcohol is involved. Um, but, but um, the, <laughs> You know, it, it, there's another dimension of this, which You'll also You'll notice ties... there was no denial of that from any quarter on this podcast. No, no. I, I wasn't going to dignify it with a response. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and he was having a shot, as I was saying it, in any event. Yeah, but... yeah I was gulping at that gulping. exact moment. Mid-gulp. Mid, mid but... Um, a couple of days ago, you wrote a, a piece for the Financial Times, as is your want, called A Bad Impeachment for Mike Pompeo. And the end of the piece is, in what seems like an age ago, U.S. politics used to stop at the water's edge. Now foreign politics has invaded the Washington swamp. Mr. Pompeo is the face of an America that no longer bothers with diplomacy. And I see that as a reference to what we're talking about here, which is... You know, there used to be a higher motivation for the people who engaged in foreign policy, um, and that was to advance national interests. Uh, and when you set aside that motivation and what you focus on is politics and simply the power equation to keep your boss in power and to keep him happy with you, and that boss is, you know, a, a, someone with no values. Um, you're doubling down. You're you're taking any possibility of of elevating elements out of this. In addition, uh, as it happens, to failing to fulfill your oath to the Constitution. And so I'm wondering if you might want to extrapolate on this core idea to this last column of yours and how it ties in uh, to this uh, this this case. Um, with uh, uh, Navy Secretary Spencer and beyond. Yeah, this is one of the reasons why Spencer, you know, regardless of whether he, you know, talks in public after this, um, should be celebrated and congratulated for, you know, resigning on a, a point of principle. And okay, he was fired, but he threatened to resign and publicly aired that on a point of a very, very important point of principle. Um, and we should celebrate him precisely because it's inconceivable to think of Pompeo doing the same thing and now Defense Secretary Esper um, or indeed any other figure. I mean, just to pluck, um, you know, we could mention Bill Barr and that could be a whole separate podcast. Um, Bill Barr being a sort of militant mob personal lawyer for Trump, essentially. Um, but we can pluck, you know, cabinet principals and, and senior Trump people you know, at random, think of Rick Perry, who who believes that Trump uh, is 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 appointed by God. I mean, you've got you've got the most extraordinary bunch of prin unprincipled people um, who um, 
are there because they have one loyalty, not to the Constitution, not to any political principles, um, but simply to Donald Trump. And whether that loyalty is motivated by genuine adulation um, or fear or just some sort of tawdry ambition that this, this is an experience that can be monetized, whatever is the reason um, for that, we know that Richard Spencer is the exception to the rule. Is somebody who actually has principles. Um, and that's a terrible thing. So the, 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 the great um, relief and pleasure that Corey was describing with which Trump's election was greeted um, in the more patrimonial sort of corners of the world, including the Gulf, was also um, greeted with great pleasure in um, in areas of the world like Russia and China uh, that have long bristled at America claiming to uphold universal standards and, and claiming that it speaks, you know, for, in some respects, all humanity, that uh, everybody has rights um, and that America sees its role as furthering those rights. And, of course, the downside to that America was hypocrisy. Whenever, you know, America decided it had another interest a national interest that cut across upholding these rights, we would all shout very loud, loudly that America has double standards, that it's um, in love with its own virtuosity, but that in practice it isn't at all what it preaches in principle, and so on. Um, and that um, the end of this hypocritical, idealistic America and its replacement by a completely transactional, cynical um, and nihilistic America was great because now they're down to our level. Now, 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 Putin. Now, Putin is not looked down upon. Um, he's no longer a pariah, um, and uh, it manifests itself. This Ukrainization of America, this uh, sort of importing of um, of of normal politics from um, undemocratic parts of the world or pre-modern parts of the world, it normalizes itself in so many ways and goes through so many channels in Washington, D.C. today that there's no one moment, you know, where you stop and say, ah, things have changed. We just know they've changed. They're changing um, all the time. I think um, it was Hemingway who said, that, you know, um, uh, how do you go bankrupt? Um, gradually, then suddenly. Well, Gradually, you know, America, American values and American political standards have been falling for quite a while. But Trump is the suddenly. Um, and it's, um, you know, personified to me, not just in Trump, but if I had to pick one member of, of his administration, it's that person who's charged with America's relations with the rest of the world. And he doesn't give a damn. You know, journalists get arrested in Egypt. People get, you know, sawn to pieces in a, in a consulate in Turkey, um, whatever. Na name name your, your horror, your monstrosity. Pompeo doesn't give a damn. If Trump doesn't give a damn, he doesn't give a damn. And so America doesn't give a damn. And that is an enormous source of comfort, sucker, and relief to thugs all over the world. Uh, and at home. Uh, you know, I, I think... At home. Well I, said, Ed. Yeah, no, I well said indeed. And in fact, uh, I think there's a great column that is titled, you know, how does a nation go morally bankrupt gradually that suddenly, but I warn you, if you write that column, it will have the same title as this podcast, because I'm taking that and that's going to be the title <laughs> of this podcast. 
Um, <laughs> um, but you know, in the in the last couple of minutes, I you know I I like to turn to you and ask you to wax even slightly more philosophical or perhaps pro prescriptively about this. Um, and I'm going to just bring up one thing that struck me as just listening to Ed and present it to you, Rosa, but but open uh, open to other thoughts about what do you do about this. Um, and, and that is this. I remember once, three, four years ago, um, uh, when I was working on some project, I think it was at Foreign Policy, I went around to the top 20 schools of uh, international affairs and public affairs, the top 10 of each. And I, 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 I asked around to see what percentage of those schools required students who would later be serving in these fields to study ethics. Uh, and, I, and I think two of them did out of the 20. Uh, and just a couple more offered courses on ethics. And you know, I, this may seem kind of very academic and dry uh, to note this, but it, it has always seemed to me that applied ethics is what these jobs are about. And we don't teach that as though it's the case. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that or the role leadership might play in this or something else. Each of you, starting with Rosa. Sure. Um, so I'm actually a, a great skeptic of about ethics courses. Um, uh, there, in fact, have been a number of studies done, at least in the, the legal setting. Uh, the correlation between taking of professional ethics courses and ethical behavior subsequently uh, I'm sorry to say, uh, it's not present to say Well, the wait least. a second. Um, That's correlation <laughs> among lawyers. These are people no, who but, want to but, be lawyers. No, but I, I, I'm, I'm skeptical more generally, frankly. I, I think the problem is I, I don't disagree with you that ethics is something that is important and ought to be emphasized in professional education. But I think that what what is normally taught in classes called ethics is is crappy and worthless, most nine, nine out of 10 times, not always, but nine out of 10 times. So I would hesitate to suggest as a solution, hey, let's all make everybody take the ethics courses. I think that there are probably better ways to incorporate those, uh, both the, you know, to me, it has, it has as much as anything else. It has to do with learning history, learning philosophy, um, and the example set by the leadership. You know, it's, you, you can't, you can't, if you don't have it by the time you're 25, you're not going to learn it in a course called ethics. You may learn some lessons about how likely people are to eventually get caught and pay for their sins in a historically focused class, um, but that's a little bit different. Um, I do think, shifting slightly, um, if we should be so lucky as to have the opportunity to move on from Donald Trump after January 2021, which I do not regard as a foregone conclusion, but, but if that happens, um, I do think one of the really important tasks ahead of us uh, is going to be doing the hard work of sort of shoring up that normative framework. Um, and that not only has to do with how we think about education and training for the, the future professionals, uh, I think it also very much has to do with um, making sure that we, I mean, we, I mean, there's a number of things just off the top of my head. One, that we celebrate the people who did the right thing. Um, that we shun uh, and shame the people who consistently did the wrong thing, that when possible and appropriate, that we use legal forms of accountability, that they get prosecuted or they get sued 
uh, those who actually broke the law. Um, uh, but I, I, I think that all those forms of accountability are really important to, to, to sort of set down a kind of a clear marker of we're not doing that. And I've, I've said before on this podcast, I think a big mistake Barack Obama made was not being more serious about accountability for particularly egregious uh, abuses during the Bush administration, such as the use of torture and the, the political decision to clear the way for the use of torture. You know, I think that Obama was so focused on letting bygones be bygones, let's all just be friends, that that marker never did get set of this is not okay. Uh, and thus we get even worse behavior coming along a little later. Um, so I do think that accountability is important. I, I also think that we should be really attentive to, to institutional architecture. Um, we, we do know some things about the types of institutional structures that make dissent and effective dissent and healthy discussions uh, more likely, as well as the institutional structures that make abuses and uh, discrimination and mistreatment uh, and ethical slipshod behavior more likely. Um, I always, I actually always think in this respect of the famous line from, from John Milton, uh, you know, I cannot praise a fugitive and cloistered virtue. Um, and I've always thought, well, that's the only virtue that we get uh, in human society is that we, we have to really think about how we build the cloisters uh, that support virtue, because if we don't build them, people will not necessarily be virtuous all by themselves. And to be a little bit more concrete about what I mean by that, it, you know, it goes to things like really robust whistleblower protections, um, really robust and independent inspector generals, really robust reporting channels uh, to Congress, uh, really robust um, internal dissent mechanisms and red teaming and so forth. Uh, you know, that there are all kinds of ways. It's, it, we can't just create this set of values or restore this set of values by saying, okay, everybody have good values now, don't do that nasty stuff again. You know, that the, the ways that we design our, our agencies, our workplaces, our schools uh, very much will contribute to whether that increased public virtue becomes likely or unlikely. Um, well said. Uh, Corey and Ed, we have a one or two minutes here left and and Corey I think Rosa's thrown down the gauntlet by quoting Milton. <laughs> I in fact want to contest Rosa's interpretation of Milton that there's <laughs> no such thing as an uncloistered virtue. Um, and I want to counter her. There is such with, thing. It's merely rare. Well, what he's saying is that he's actually taking your position which is that if you only have ethics in an ivory tower, if all you do is teach ethics of the profession, instead of practicing, habituating yourself to act that way and creating um, feedback mechanisms where we all get judged on our behavior um, by shame, by social isolation, by rewards, um, that you're not gonna end up with a virtuous society. Right. And it's the same thing that Aristotle says. We do not act rightly because we have virtue or excellence, but rather we have those because we act rightly. Um, and so I, I agree that it's going to be a huge reconstruction project when Donald Trump is finally not at the head of the Republican Party. And it will be a hard call. Tamara Woodis and I were just talking about 
you know, both of us do a little bit of work on transitional justice issues. And we are actually going to have to have that conversation in this country about whose behavior has been so corrupt and so damaging to the norms and institutions of American democracy that we, we don't want to accept them back into the mainstream of our professional and social circles. But, but that's what President Trump and his enablers have forced on us. Yes, indeed. Ed, do you have a, a last word here? I'm sort of Aristotle, Milton. I'm, I, I don't think I can compete here. I think that the, both Corey and Rosa have given uh, um, very good answers, and that uh, I should um, I should um, probably leave, leave them with the last word. <laughs> you could quote Shakespeare. Yeah, I could quote. Well, I tried Ernest Hemingway, but you blew me out of the water. <laughs> no no that was that was that was very good do you guys think john milton i of course when you say that i think milton burl but the only quote i think another of another great great philosopher Milton. another burl. great milton and the only quote i can think of that from him off the top of my head is something to the effect of any time a person goes into a delicatessen and orders a pastrami on white bread somewhere a jew dies but, but I, I don't really think it, it it has anything to do with this conversation. But it's been a good conversation. I'm really, really glad to have gotten you all together to talk about this, because I think this issue of moral crisis uh, manifests itself daily in our lives, and we have to deal with it. Uh, I don't think the answer is turning to the evangelical leaders who are supporting Trump, by the way, um, uh, who seem to be willing to actually egg on this behavior if it advances they're very narrow yeah no it's 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 pretty horrifying that they sort of drape themselves in rectitude and in fact undermine it every single day uh but that's why deep state radio is here um and we don't call you up and we don't say please donate so we can have a new g5 uh, although you could become a member by going to the dsrnetwork.com. It's much cheaper than most of these donations require. And, uh, and you yeah, could get a, do that. Deep State yeah, Radio yeah, nerds. do that. And you could get a mug out of it. Deep state nerds. Um, I've learned by the way, that most podcasts are listened to for about halfway, 40% to 50%. And we're really lucky with our deep state nerds because they listen to 96% of the podcast. And I, I was thinking, thinking that's they, amazing. They, they listen right up to the moment where you say, Ed, would you like a final word? <laughs> <laughs> now, well, I, you know, I had thought of it. And then it just goes I, off a cliff. I'm, I'm, I'm really comforted by your interpretation because my interpretation was they listen right up to the point where I say join and become a member. But uh, <laughs> uh, could be both. Uh, in any event, we're glad they joined. I'm glad that you joined Ed and you did uh, Corey and that you did Rosa. We encourage everybody to join us a little later in the week for our special Thanksgiving uh, episode and every week here at Deep State Radio. Thanks very much. <laughs>